0: Listening to Inside Expert by Econ One Research. Find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And now, your host, Stephanie Arnold.
1: Hi, and welcome to the show, Dr. Brian Kriegler.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you here. Would you mind introducing yourself for our audience?
0: Sure. I am a managing director in the Econ One Los Angeles office. My practice focuses on statistical issues, and in particular, wage and hour class actions.
1: We are very happy to have you here, and before we get into talking about what you came to talk about, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's the same one that we've been asking everybody else, and that is, what was your very first job?
0: My first job was a baseball camp counselor. I was 16 years old, and it was pretty cool because I got paid to play baseball.
1: That sounds right up your alley. (laughs) Well, what are you here to talk to us about today?
0: I'm here to talk about data collected from surveys and some of the challenges that come up, particularly in litigation, interpreting survey data, and to talk about uh, a couple of cases that I've worked on recently.
1: How do you use survey data in your line of work?
0: It's used a number of ways. Uh, For instance, it can be used to gauge variability, to look for patterns among respondents, and to make statements about a larger population.
1: I take it that when you work with survey data, you're usually working with information from a sample of people?
0: Typically, yes, for one of two reasons. Either everybody in the population is given a survey, but not everybody responds, Or, alternatively, only a subset of people in the population receive the survey in the first place.
1: What consequences are there to your analysis if you don't get 100% participation from everybody in the survey?
0: It's rare to get 100% participation. So let's get that out of the way. The fact that not everybody responds means that there could be some non-response bias. If there's non-response bias, then the estimate, for instance, the average, may not be indicative of the defined population. Under those circumstances, statistical inference is tougher to justify when not everybody responds.
1: What do you do when not everyone responds? How does that make the survey reliable?
0: My approach, everybody's got a different approach, but my approach is to take A holistic view of the data whether it's a random sample or it's not it's important to apply the right interpretation
1: can you give us an example
0: I can Um, I'm currently working on a wage and hour class action in which the minor league baseball players alleged that they were not paid for all hours worked. In particular, during spring training, they alleged that their earnings were zero. And in that case, survey data were collected. Some Some ball players responded, some didn't. Among those that did respond, it was clear that Some people put in longer hours than others, but everybody was putting in some hours. And there was a, what I call a minimum expectation for how much everybody was supposed to work.
1: I want to go back though. So in the minor leader's case, how did you know that the responses that you were getting were reliable?
0: In that instance, we compared itineraries and daily schedules. From the teams to people's responses in order to see when ballplayers were expected to work.
1: What did you find?
0: Some ballplayers purportedly worked really long hours. They might have been on the field from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m., for instance. Every ballplayer was expected to be on the field by a certain time, for instance, by 9 a.m., it's very similar to a lot of places of work. Some, some people work longer hours than others, but every full-time employee is expected to put in a certain number of hours, be it 35 or 40 hours in a week.
1: I wanna switch gears a little bit and ask you about the actual survey. How does that look in the survey data?
0: Yeah, so this is the fun part because the data include all kinds of responses. In the survey data, we would see a lot of variation. Some people purportedly would work longer hours than others. What we would do is compute some relatively low percentiles, the fifth percentile and the tenth percentile. We line up all of the purported hours worked and take, uh, if there were 100 responses, we would look at the fifth lowest response. We would look at the tenth lowest response. And then we would compare those numbers to the itineraries that the teams produced.
1: So in this situation, it's not just about calculating an average?
0: It's not just about computing the average. There's nothing that says you have to compute an average, and there's nothing that says that the average has to be reliable in order for the survey to be reliable.
1: What are your thoughts when someone says the survey is unreliable?
0: Quite honestly, I don't know what that means because it's all about the interpretation of the data. Maybe different practitioners have different interpretations of the data, but oftentimes I'm interested in computing something other than just an average. Maybe the average is not representative of the whole population. That doesn't mean that the data can't be used at all
1: how else have you seen surveys effectively used in wage and hour litigation?
0: I see and use them a lot in wage and hour class actions uh, prior to class certification or leading up to class certification, particularly in California. Um, what, what I end up doing at that stage typically is gauge variability. And I will work with those results to assess what sample size is likely needed at trial in order to obtain a the desired margin of error.
1: And this is reliable even if not everybody responds. What if there's some non-response bias?
0: Even if there's non-response bias, that just means that the average m- may not be indicative of the larger population. But it's usually the case, in my experience, that the measure of variability is still something that can be gleaned from the survey data. Unless a good portion of responses are closely clustered around the same value, the variability from the survey can still be informative.
1: Any downsides to survey data?
0: There's a couple of things about surveys in litigation. One is typically surveys are anonymous, so there's no opportunity to cross-examine people. And second, some judges allow surveys, and some don't.
1: What do you do when you run into one of these roadblocks?
0: I think this just underscores how critical it is to convey how the survey is being used. Is it being used to figure out how many people to call a trial? Is it being used to prove liability? Is it being used to prove damages? Is, are the measures of interest—do the measures of interest include the 10th percentile, or the median, or the average, it's all about applying the right interpretation to the data.
1: If you could give our listeners one big takeaway about all of this, what would it be?
0: Survey data can be valuable. It can be useful. It can be relied upon. But there are some limitations, and it's important to recognize those and not use the survey use survey data in the wrong way.
1: Well, going back to the minor league baseball case you were talking about, it sounds like you had a really good time working on it.
0: It was pretty awesome. I mean, if you remember the the song from Sound of Music, My Favorite Things. Survey statistics and baseball and data.
1: <laughs> all together.
0: <laughs> all in all together.
1: <laughs> well, then you've answered my question of what, what is your you know, favorite part about this job with a song. So thank you. You're the first to to do that. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure having you here. And before we say goodbyes or anything else that you'd like our listeners to know.
0: Yeah, for what it's worth, I wrote a couple of articles on Law 360 that address non-response, non-response bias and missing data. I believe it's also on the Econ One website as well.
1: It is. And if you'd like to read more about Brian Kriegler, head over to our website at www.econone.com. onecom
0: Thank you for joining us on Inside Expert.